Section 156 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 187. London, May 27th, Old Style, 1753. My dear friend, I have this day been tired, jaded, nay, tormented, by the company of a most worthy, sensible, and learned man, a near relation of mine, who dined and passed the evening with me. This seems a paradox, but is a plain truth. He has no knowledge of the world, no manners, no address. Far from talking without book, is commonly said of people who talk sillily. He only talks by book, which in general conversation is ten times worse. He has formed in his own closet from books certain systems of everything, argues tenaciously upon those principles, and is both surprised and angry at whatever deviates from them. His theories are good, but unfortunately all are impracticable. Why? Because he is only read and not conversed. He is acquainted with books, and an absolute stranger to men. Laboring with his matter, he is delivered of it with pangs. He hesitates, stops in his utterance, and always expresses himself inelegantly. His actions are all ungraceful, so that, with all his merit and knowledge, I would rather converse six hours with the most frivolous tittle-tattle woman who knew something of the world than with him. The preposterous notions of a systematical man who does not know the world tire the patience of a man who does. It would be endless to correct his mistakes, nor would he take it kindly, for he has considered everything deliberately, and is very sure that he is in the right. Impropriety is a characteristic, and a never-failing one, of these people. Regardless, because ignorant of customs and manners, they violate them every moment. They often shock, though they never mean to offend, never attending either to the general character or the particular distinguishing circumstances of the people to whom, or before whom, they talk. Whereas the knowledge of the world teaches one that the very same things which are exceedingly right and proper in one company, time, and place, are exceedingly absurd in others. In short, a man who has great knowledge, from experience and observation, of the characters, customs, and manners of mankind, is a being as different from, and as superior to, a man of mere book and systematical knowledge, as a well-managed horse is to an ass. Study, therefore, cultivate and frequent men and women, not only in their outward and consequently guarded, but in their interior, domestic, and consequently less disguised characters and manners. Take your notions of things, as by observation and experience you find they really are, and not as you read that they are or should be, for they never are quite what they should be. For this purpose do not content yourself with general and common acquaintance, but wherever you can, establish yourself with a kind of domestic familiarity, in good houses. For instance, go again to Orley, for two or three days, and so at two or three reprises. Go and stay two or three days at a time at Versailles, and improve and extend the acquaintance you have there. Be at home at St. Cloud, and, whenever any private person of fashion invites you to, pass a few days at his country house, except of the invitation. This will necessarily give you a versatility of mind, and a facility to adopt various manners and customs, for everybody desires to please those in whose house they are, and people are only to be pleased in their own way. Nothing is more engaging than a cheerful and easy conformity to people's particular manners, habits, and even weaknesses. Nothing, to use a vulgar expression, should come amiss to a young fellow. He should be, for good purposes, what Alcibiades was commonly for bad ones, a Proteus, assuming with ease and wearing with cheerfulness any shape. Heat, 
cold, luxury, abstinence, gravity, gaiety, ceremony, easiness, learning, trifling, business, and pleasure, are modes which he should be able to take, lay aside, or change occasionally, with as much ease as he would take or lay aside his hat. All this is only to be acquired by use and knowledge of the world, by keeping a great deal of company, analyzing every character, and insinuating yourself into the familiarity of various acquaintance. A right, a generous ambition to make a figure in the world, necessarily gives the desire of pleasing. The desire of pleasing points out, to a great degree, the means of doing it, and the art of pleasing is, in truth, the art of rising, of distinguishing one's self, of making a figure and a fortune in the world. But without pleasing, without the graces, as I have told you a thousand times, on ye fatica ivana, you are now but nineteen, an age at which most of your countrymen are illiberally getting drunk in port, at the university. You have greatly got the start of them in learning, and if you can equally get the start of them in the knowledge and manners of the world, you may be very sure of outrunning them in court and parliament, as you set out much earlier than they. They generally begin but to see the world at one and twenty. You will, by that age, have seen all Europe. They set out upon their travels unlicked cubs, and in their travels they only lick one another, for they seldom go into any other company. They know nothing but the English world, and the worst part of that, too, and generally very little of any but the English language, and they come home, at three or four-and-twenty, refined and polished, as it is said in one of Congreve's plays, like Dutch skippers from a whale-fishing. The care which has been taken of you, and, to do you justice, the care that you have taken of yourself, has left you, at the age of nineteen only, nothing to acquire but the knowledge of the world, manners, address, and those exterior accomplishments. But they are great and necessary acquisitions, to those who have sense enough to know their true value, and your getting them before you are one and twenty, and before you enter upon the active and shining scenes of life, will give you such an advantage over all your contemporaries that they cannot overtake you, they must be distanced. You may probably be placed about a young prince, who will probably be a young king. There, all the various arts of pleasing, the engaging address, the versatility of manners, the brilliant, the graces, will outweigh, and yet outrun, all solid knowledge and unpolished merit. Oil yourself, therefore, and be both supple and shining, for that race, if you would be first or early at the goal. Ladies will most probably, too, have something to say there, and those who are best with them will probably be best somewhere else. Labor this great point, my dear child, indefatigably. Attend to the very smallest parts, the minutest graces, the most trifling circumstances, that can possibly concur in forming the shining character of a complete gentleman, un galant homme, un homme de coeur, a man of business and pleasure, estime des hommes, recherche des femmes, aime de tout le monde. In this view, observe the shining part of every man of fashion, who is liked and esteemed, Attend to and imitate that particular accomplishment for which you hear him chiefly celebrated and distinguished. Then collect those various parts, and make yourself a mosaic of the whole. No one body possesses everything, and almost everybody possesses some one thing worthy of imitation. Only choose your models well, and in order to do so, choose by your ear more than by your eye. The best model is always that which is most universally allowed to be the best, though in strictness it may possibly not be so. We must take most things as they are. We cannot make them what we would, nor often what they should be, and where moral duties are not concerned, 
it is more prudent to follow than to attempt to lead. Adieu. End of section 156. Read by Professor Heather Mbye. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.